smooth. It's smooth. Well, as Brent said, um, I'm excited. We're, I get to kick off a series that we're beginning on prayer, and you're getting the, those prayer trifolds that are coming around. Um, anybody watch, read that book? Like, I don't know, 80s kids in here read, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Oh, yeah. Has anybody ever asked that question before? Are you there, God? Yeah. Yes. I would imagine that each of us in this room have in many points in our life. So we are jumping into a prayer series that we're calling, Are You There, God? And although it might feel like formulas, we just gave you prayers to be praying each daily, what we don't want this to be is like, here are six steps to a richer prayer life. And if you do these things, you'll see God answer, you know. Uh, we don't actually know all those things. There's so much mystery in prayer. And if there's anything that we are trying to get more and more comfortable with in this place, it is mystery in our relationship with God. But we do know that prayer matters, that prayer is significant and powerful for us. It's powerful for us together as a community. And it's, prayer, it's powerful um, in, in helping God hear us and listen and, and communication. Um, and so in that light, we want to do a series on prayer. We want to pray together for 40 days. And um, instead of having, you know, all these different points or different topics that we're going to pray through each week or talk about each week on a Sunday morning, we're just going to jump into stories of prayer in Scripture. What are stories of people who've encountered God in prayer? What are their uh, characteristics? What are their encounters in prayer? Um, and that's how we're going to lead this series on Sunday mornings. And so I get to kick us off this morning with a story from uh, a woman named Hannah. And this is an Old Testament story. Uh, Hannah's story is in the book of 1 Samuel, if you want to follow along this morning. But I'm just going to tell you actually a lot of her story, and then I'll jump into some scripture. So there's this woman, Hannah, who was married to a man named Elkanah, and um, Elkanah was also married to another woman. Her name is Peninnah. Um, and there was something significant about Hannah and Peninnah, these sister wives. Uh, Hannah was not able to have children, and Peninnah was. In fact, her name means fertile, and she had many children. And this was very significant at this time. I realize that even today, and even as I say this, and I begin this message in this service, for some of you, you might already have this thing coming up in you like, oh, I already, I hear the name Hannah, or I hear about that idea of not being able to have children, and there's something in me that feels the pain of that. And so I acknowledge that in the room this morning, um, and in our society still today, and especially in Christian culture, where we can easily idolize the kind of nuclear family, and we can idolize marriage, and we can idolize uh, kids and, and the, that nuclear family. Um, and so I know that's been a place of pain for people. And Hannah experienced that as well. And probably even more so on a significant level because of just the way society was set up at that time. So every family at this time in Hannah's day needed an heir because you didn't have social security. You know, you didn't have a 401k or retirement to sustain you in your old age. You had your kids, and you didn't have, you know, you had a family business, or you ran the farm, and you needed kids to do the work with you and for you and to sustain you. And so there was this whole level of financial security that was not around 
um, especially if you are a woman without children in that time. And that's likely why Elkanah had married this woman, Peninnah, that he'd married Hannah first, and when finding out that she couldn't have children, married Peninnah, who could have children. And also, in this culture, a woman's worth was so defined by her children and her ability to have children. Her significance was caught up in her motherhood, in her ability to be fruitful and multiply. Having no kids in this culture meant failure. It was like seen as, you know, if if children are God's blessing, if God wasn't blessing you, something was wrong with you. And so it was a big deal. So as you think about Hannah, we enter her story knowing this issue that was a place of deep pain for her. And not only did she experience the pain of infertility, of longing for a child, and knowing that she felt like she needed a child and wasn't able to have a child, but also the shame that she'd received from her community, people looking at her, judging her because she wasn't able to have children. What's wrong with her? What's she done that God won't bless her with kids? And can you imagine that feeling of her feeling like she's not enough for her husband? She needs to be able to provide children and she can't, so much so that he goes and marries another woman who can have children. And not only all of those things, but the the woman that Elkanah marries, so her sister wife, is cruel. She is cruel to Hannah, and she provokes her, it says. In scripture, it uses this, this word provoke, which is significant. It means thunder or roar. Like, I mean, that tells you the level of provocation that Hannah experienced from Peninnah. This level of, I'm like, I just imagine then, like, she's living in this storm of, of, um, of feeling the shame and the guilt and the accusations by so many people, including Peninnah, the other woman that was around her. And so on this day, in this story that we see in 1 Samuel, something significant happens. On this day, they're all going to Shiloh. So Elkanah, Peninnah, Hannah, Peninnah and Elkanah's kids, and many people would gather once a year and they would go to where the tabernacle was. The location of the tabernacle was Shiloh and they would go there to offer sacrifices, to worship, and then to feast and have this time together. And so when we find this story, Hannah's story in 1 Samuel, they're headed to Shiloh. And it even says that on their way there, that Peninnah was doing what Peninnah does and she was provoking Hannah on their way. And they had done this year after year. This year, something was a little different. But it wasn't Peninnah. Peninnah was on her case, was provoking her, was mean to her, and they're, they're walking there this place where they're going to worship, where they're going to feast and offer the sacrifices. And you can imagine the state that Hannah is in. She's hurting. Hurting deeply. And so when they arrive, they gather and they eat. They eat the sacrifices they've made. And Elkanah, as the husband, begins to divvy out portions of the meat. It would have been a treat to eat meat. And so he's passing out these portions of meat to the children, to the, his wives, to the people there. And he sees Hannah, and I imagine he sees, he knows, he knows she is hurting deeply. And so it says in scripture that she, he gave her a double portion. It's like, I'm gonna give you extra because of your pain. And so you see Hannah in this moment, having gone to Shiloh, 
there to worship, there to offer sacrifice, there to feast with her family. But she's constantly reminded of her inadequacy. I imagine even as they're gathered around that table eating that she's watching little kids run around that she doesn't have. That she's sitting next to Penina, who's provoked her for so long. That even her husband's offering of a double portion is his reminder to her and her reminder to him that something's off with Hannah. She's sad, and there's a reason why. And she's going there to worship a God who I imagine she's prayed to so many times for a baby and hasn't gotten one. So I want you to hear this because I think there is this vulnerability in this moment with Hannah that feels so deep. She must feel so isolated and so misunderstood. And Elkanah, God bless him, I think he really loves Hannah, and you see that. He's like, let me give you a double portion of meat because you're hurting, because you can't have a baby, you know? But Brent and I were laughing in message community because he's like, that's such a husband thing to do or a male thing to do in that moment, stereotypically. Let me give, let me, like, j- let me just fix you. Yeah, let me eat, eat a little bit more. Let me give you something to offer a little extra comfort. And clearly it's not a comfort to her. It says in scripture that she was weeping so much that she couldn't eat. Have you ever been there? You're grieving so much. You are so in inner turmoil that you can't eat. That tells you the level of grief that she's feeling. And then he says to her, again, bless him, Hannah, why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? So he offers her this comfort of extra food, even though she's not eating. And then he's like, don't I mean more to you? Is my love not enough for you, Hannah? And I laughed this week as I read that because have you ever experienced that in a place of pain in your life? You're hurting deeply and it may be your spouse, it may be a coworker, it may be a a fellow friend from church who offers you some kind of comfort that is actually not comfort at all. You ever had somebody say like, well, at least you have this. Well, God, you know, there's just so many terrible things that we say to each other often in that place of watching someone grieve and we long to offer some kind of comfort, but it's a false comfort often. It's a quick fix, and we like that. But Hannah will not take it. Hannah doesn't want his double portion. Hannah doesn't even answer his question. Hannah is so internally wrestling, she is so vulnerable that she can't even respond in this situation. Instead, she gets up from that table. And even as I was reading in the commentary, there's, there's even the, the, the phrase get up is not even quite strong enough. It's almost like this defiantly like, I am, I am removing myself from this situation and I'm going to a place where there's something for me. There's nothing for me here. She gets up and she goes to the only place where she might find solace on that day. 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 18 says, Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you look on your servant's misery 
and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Essentially, she's, she's saying, I'm gonna give him for this vow that they would have done in this culture for time periods in their life, uh, a, a Nazarite vow, which means just to concentrate um, or to be set apart for a time and they wouldn't cut their hair and they wouldn't eat certain things and they wouldn't drink. And so she's saying, I will give my child this as a, a vow to you. I will consecrate him forever to you. She keeps on praying to the Lord and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you gonna stay drunk? Put away your wine. Can you imagine this woman pouring out her heart, all these other people, and she goes to this one place of solace, like, God, meet me in this moment. And the priest is like, Hannah, get it together. I think that in that moment, honestly, he probably assumes like, oh, given her situation, she's probably been drinking because she's hurting. And she says, no, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. She says, I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli says, okay, he's correct. I stand corrected. Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant what you've asked of him. May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and she ate something. And it says her face was no longer downcast. One of the things I think we learn from Hannah in regards to prayer here is that in Hannah's suffering, in her place of deep pain, Hannah leans into God and not away from him. Like I said, when Hannah gets up from that table and goes to pray, I see this very deliberate moment here. Like she's choosing to get up. She's choosing to walk away from all the lies that surround her. The lies about her worth, the lies about her enoughness, the lies about who she actually is. She even resists the false comfort of food. Amen? Anybody need to do that? Just like me? She resists the false comfort of her husband's love. He's like, am I not enough for you? No, you're not. She resists all of those and she walks away and she goes to God in that moment. She runs to God in all of her pain in all of her unmet expectations and her isolation. She leans into God and I am in awe of her for that. I think if I, that was me, I would have lashed out on my husband. I would have long ago lashed out on Peninnah. And I would have been defending myself among the crowd. Listen to me, Eli. Listen to me, crowd. I, I am, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I've been asking the Lord for a child. Like, I would be defending myself. I'd be lashing out. I would be grabbing at all these things. And she doesn't do that. And if I wasn't doing those things, I would probably be putting up walls, protect myself. But she doesn't do that either. She leans in to this place of deep anguish and pain, and she goes to pray, and she pours her heart out, pours her heart out so honestly, so fervently that she seems drunk. I love that. 
I love this part of the story. She doesn't pray some sweet little simple prayer. You know, she doesn't pray some theologically accurate, beautiful, profound prayer that sometimes we pray when we get around other Christians in prayer meetings, right? She prays a real, honest, raw prayer, bawling, weeping. It says weeping bitterly, pouring out her soul. She lays it all out and leans fully into this moment with God. And it seems to me, in my own experience, and in working with so many people over a long haul, that humans want to run away when things are painful and when we suffer. That's probably human nature. We want to protect ourselves. We tend to lean out instead of lean in. We want to protect, we want to lean into false comforts like food, like alcohol, like lashing out, like walking away from God instead of walking toward him, looking for any other source of comfort. All those false comforts that people offer us, we want to say yes to. In Hannah's time, people would idol worship. You know, God doesn't answer your prayer, build an idol, like worship the idol, Or believe in superstition. There was a lot of that kind of stuff that went on. God's not answering? Ask somebody else. Do the stars align? We do the same thing, don't we? We look for other sources of comfort. Do I have any leaner outers in the room? You don't have to raise your hand. But Who resist that vulnerable place? You resist that place where you're like, oh no, I'm going to crumble and I'm going to cry. And instead, you try to protect or fix and carry on. And I want you to hear this morning, God longs for you to lean into him in prayer, bringing your full self to him, leaving nothing left unsaid, real and raw, weeping and lamenting, This week I kept saying, God, remove me of tidy, clean, proper prayers. (laughs) Even Matthew was telling me, he told me this a while ago in counseling, that they have to be careful even about how they, when they're working with a client who's experiencing something really painful, they don't even offer them Kleenex often or taught not to offer them Kleenex. You know why? Even though we think of it as like a tender, hospitable thing to do, it's like in some way it's saying, Okay, clean that up, you know. And don't we do that so often with each other and in our own lives? Clean it up. But there is an invitation here to weep, to lament. And I think we could learn, even this week, with everything going on in our world, I'm like, I think we could learn something from Hannah in this moment. We got to stop. We're thinking about what's going on in our world in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine. And what do we want to do? We want to go to quick fixes. We want to say all of our opinions. We want to take sides. We want to blame. We want to strategize. No, God says weep, lament. Would you come with your mumbling prayers like Hannah? There's an author and a theologian that I love, Henry Nouwen, and he says, I am beginning to see that much of prayer is grieving. And I wonder if, some, if that's some of the reason why we don't pray. We don't like to grieve. I would say especially 
For those of us in the room who are white, who are Midwestern, we don't like to grieve. We like things tidy and prim and proper. And you don't see that in Hannah here. In our prayers, we grieve the things that are not right, the things that are not the way they're supposed to be, the things that cause pain in us, the things that cause pain in others. We grieve as we pray, we weep and we lament. And then what happens? What do we see happen in this story? I love this part of the story too, because what do we see happens to Hannah in this moment? When Hannah leans in, when she prays in that raw, real, powerful place, when Hannah pours out her soul, something shifts. When Hannah goes to the tabernacle, walks right on past Eli and lays it out, left nothing unsaid before the Lord, something shifts in her. And how do we know that? Because it says when she left, she ate. Her appetite returned. It said her face was no longer downcast. There's peace about her, maybe even joy returning to her. And her leaning into suffering and pain and pouring her soul out in grief before the Lord rather than avoiding or fixing or pushing down and finding other solutions. When she leans in to that suffering and that place of pain, she finds great intimacy with God. And I think in that moment, you, you know, there's a lot that's unsaid here, but I think in that moment, what happens is she goes to this real source of comfort, not Elkanah, not Peninnah, not anything else, not her double portion of food. She goes to God in that moment, her true source of comfort. She pours out her soul. And you know what she experiences? She experiences being known, being heard, being understood, being seen, being loved. And those are all the things that she hadn't had in the spaces where she's been before. And she has this shift in that moment. She leaves that encounter with God and her face is no longer downcast. She eats. And then we see this shift in the story. In 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 20, it says, early the next morning they arose and they worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Twist in the story, she gets pregnant. And I love she names him Samuel because it means God has heard. But you know what? Even when I started off this week reading this passage and praying through this passage, I love that moment. But I'm like, this story is not about that moment, I don't think. I think this story is actually bigger than this moment with Samuel because I want you to notice something really important here. Another thing that we learn from Hannah in prayer is that Hannah's peace and her joy and her contentment don't come when she has that baby. You know when they come? Before. Yes, when she talks to God, Hannah's peace and joy actually precede her answer. Is that profound? I'm like, oh God, do I actually believe that? Do I want that answer so bad or do I want intimate communion with you? The source of my comfort, the source of my peace, 
the source of my satisfaction and sustaining. Our peace doesn't come from what God gives us. It comes from God himself. And we see this in Hannah. That her, the shift in her didn't happen when she found out she was pregnant. Yay, God finally answered. No, her joy came and her peace came before she knew that God had answered her prayer. And that's been my own experience in longing and grief. And I don't pretend to know what it's like to not be able to have a child. And I know there are those of you in this room who've experienced that, who are currently experiencing that. And Matthew will tell you, even this week, as I was talking to him, I wept on your behalf. And maybe it's not just about a baby. Maybe you just, you've been in a long, dark season of waiting for something else. Maybe it's a, a partner a spouse you long to share life with. Maybe it's healing. I know there are those of you who have experienced physical ailments that just linger and have deeply interrupted a full life for you, and you're longing and waiting. And I think there's such a hope in the fact that Peace and comfort and joy comes not from when that prayer gets answered the way we see it or want it, but that peace and joy actually can come prior to that, in the midst of it. It comes when we're with God in that intimate moment with him as we commune with him in real, honest prayer. And then I just... The story goes on, and it's so beautiful. She keeps her vow to God. <laughs> she gives Samuel. She weans him. I love that. She's like, let me just have a few moments with him, you know, and has this time of feeding him and nurturing him and weaning him and then taking him to the temple, to Eli, and she dedicates her child to God, which is interesting when you think about it because that actually means that she doesn't get any of the benefits that she initially thought she needed, right? She doesn't have an heir because he's not hers anymore, she doesn't have somebody to take care of her in her old age or financial security. She doesn't have those things. She gives him back without any of the benefits of what she originally needed and desired. And that tells me, again, that she knows that Samuel was not her sustainer. A baby is not her sustainer. God was her sustainer. And God is the one that gives her significance. And she gets it. She understands I gotta keep going, it's, I'm talking too long. But there's one more thing here I wanna say that we learned from Hannah, thank you, <laughs> that I, we learned from Hannah. And it's that Hannah's suffering was not the end of the story. So I wanna, I wanna speak to those of you who I was crying over this week. If you've been in deep pain and longing, and I've been there too, for children, for a spouse, for health, for some kind of breakthrough, this is not the end of the story. There's hope. Thank God. Amen? We see Hannah's prayer is eventually answered, and she has this son, Samuel. And you know what's beautiful about Samuel? He plays this huge part in the kingdom of God. Samuel, God answers her prayer, and you think about even timing and all of that. When Samuel is born, he's dedicated to God 
and then Samuel's actually the one that anoints King David. And who, whose line is David's line? Jesus, right? This eventually points to Jesus. We see Samuel's part in this much bigger story of God. And then even just FYI, Hannah goes on to have five more children. So you just never know. You never know those moments of weeping and, and grieving and intimacy with God in prayer. We long for that connection and comfort and peace that comes from him. And also, you have no idea how he's working on your behalf and on behalf of a much bigger story. Amen? Please don't hear this, though, as I close. Please don't hear this as a, a tidy little bow on the story. Like, yay, Hannah had her baby, and it all worked out. I think that's the danger sometimes when we pray and when we do prayer series. is like when you do this and this, you get this. If we pray enough, we get what we ask for. I hope that's not what you hear this morning. I hope what you hear this morning no matter what season you're in, I hope you hear the invitation this morning to lean into God, to commune more honestly, leaving nothing left unsaid. And I do believe in that place, before you see the answer, I do believe that you will find a God who meets you, a God who sees you, who hears you, who knows you, who understands you. And that in that place, there is peace and there's joy. And later this week, as you go home, read chapter two. There's a whole prayer that Hannah prays as chapter two begins. And you see this transition from years of praying and weeping to now praying in these prophetic and beautiful, worshipful ways that are also profound, declaring God's goodness and who he is. It was a season, and it's a season for you too. This is not the end of the story. And God will meet you in the midst as you pray in a real and a raw way. No more tidy prayers, okay? No more nice Christian, let's pray our theology and impress each other, you know? Why do we do that? So I want to pray this morning. Um, and, and come find me after if you're like, I just need you, you to pray for me or somebody to pray for me because I'm in one of those seasons. And maybe if that's you, even where you are, just nobody even has to know, but you could just put your hands out and I want to pray for you too this morning.